0: And any beekeeping is good beekeeping. I think that's one of the problems we have with beekeeping. I was talking to someone at the environmental conference who was telling me I should do this with my bees and I should do this. And I kept crying and I could do that. I could do that. And it's great that you're doing that. But people get too pushed into their boxes about beekeeping, especially when, when there's mites and the bees are collapsing. A lot of bees, you know what, they get up in the morning and they look around. And they go, you know what, this isn't a great house and we're going to move. So all of a sudden they get up and they move. And we call it absconding. And everybody says, well, the bees are gone. They're just the colony collapse disorder. They're all gone. Well, maybe they left because they didn't like the neighborhood. And there wasn't enough food. No, seriously, that's why they leave, where you're spraying too much, or the tree, or they're afraid. So it's all part of what happens. So I guess our challenge, you asked me maybe what the problem is, we have to know when not to help and when to help. And that's
1: the hardest thing for me right now. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, Be a better. podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina belizzi
2: Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Balisi. Today, you're going to learn a bit about the very start of this podcast, before it was even a podcast, as I finally talk about something near and dear to my heart as the focal point of this very show. They are the givers of food and arguably our very lives depend on them. I'm here to talk about bees. I'm joined by Henry Speck to cover this story today. Henry and his wife, Mary, are in the process of converting their 50-acre farm into a nature and honeybee sanctuary. Henry, also known as Hank, is a servant beekeeper. He's an author, a value investor, and a former psychologist. This is his retirement, and like a worker bee, he is still showing up to do important work every single day. Hank even wrote a book with Mary called What Grandpa Learned from His Honey Bees, the little book to be smart with your money and help with the environment. Hank's back. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Karina. Thanks for that.
2: Well, it's so nice to have you here today, and as I alluded to... This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. When I first conceived of Care More Be Better, I was thinking it would be Care More Be Better with two E's in B, and I might even do a line of products that benefited bees and collaborate with perhaps the Paul Stamets of the world who are even treating hive collapse with things like mycelium and mushrooms and all this really innovative stuff that's happening on the nutrition side. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it today with you and perhaps we can be a little better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, everything's connected. So I think everything you're doing is helping the bees. Like it's all connected.
2: Well, we've talked about the pollinator corridors before and the importance of even planting flowering bushes and things like that on your property in lieu of something that might not flower just to support bees and support their habitats. So yes, in some capacity, but I won't say it's been the focus. So I wondered if you could start out by telling our entire audience the history of your farm and what led you to decide to turn it into a sanctuary for bees and other life.
0: So about uh, probably 200 some years ago, they started the farm. farm. It's 50 acres and all around is some of the best agricultural land in Canada. Our farm was a lake probably... I don't know, thousands of years ago. So there's black muck and peat. Our soil actually would burn in sections. So if you started a campfire, the soil would actually start burning. It's got so much different thing. And it'll actually burn under the peat. It, they've had fires here where it's burned underground and continued until it ran out of oxygen. So it's very fertile land. So when I was six years old, we purchased the farm and we had cherries and peaches. And I grew plums and I did that up until our youngest child went off to university and then to work. So it was no longer a place for the children to learn work ethic and business. So we took all the trees out and then for a while it became corn, soybean kind of place because I was busy in the practice and so on. And then true story about four years ago, I grew garlic, I love garlic. And I couldn't find a spot around our house because we were farming it to a farmer who uses the usual pesticides and herbicides. I couldn't find a place to keep my garlic safe. So I actually roped off a section of the farm Hmm. He's a great guy. You know, this is crazy. Why don't we just turn the whole farm back over to nature? Because Roundup is sprayed like every, probably five, six times in a growing season. And the first thing that happened, which just blew me away. So the first year we just left it idle. So there was corn the year before we did nothing. That first year we did nothing and 92 wildflower species popped up. Wow. So for 200 years, they were beaten with every spray, pesticide, never allowed to grow. And all of a sudden, they just popped up. And then, of course, then we it was planned. So we did we found out the tall grass prairie that was here before. And we had trees and we have two ponds, because of course bees need water, and so does wildlife. So and the bumblebees came back. And I, I would say that honeybees are a minor like we have more other pollinators and honeybees here, which is fascinating. But anyway, that's how it came about. And then we were lucky enough to get a farm sponsor and some corporate sponsors. So we're able to put sensors all over the farm. So we have data. And as you probably know, I'm a junkie watching the hives and learning. So I can't sit and watch them. I'll watch them on the video cam that anybody can do for free. We can talk about that later. But it's become sort of somewhat of a research thing and now a cause because we're picking up other land to do the same thing with.
2: Well, I wonder, as you do this work, and you obviously have fallen in love with the bees themselves too, if you could share a little bit about perhaps some myths that you might want to debunk about bees.
0: Wow, that's a great question. That's a great, well, the first I was afraid of bees I, when I started. I wasn't a skilled bee. I went out and learned as much as I could. But probably one of the things, bees are, the one that we, we started writing a book, Bees do a lot of pollinating by accident. They don't purposely get up in the morning and say, I'm gonna make the world a better planet. (laughs) They're out there bumbling and stumbling in a flower and they're pollinating that flower and then they go back to their hive. But they don't purposely do anything to help us. They're just complimentary almost by accident. But then when they do pollinate a lot of flowers, the next generation has more flowers. And then all of a sudden on our farm, which is fascinating, I was out there about a month ago, all these things are popping up that we didn't plant that are complementary to bees. And we don't know how it got there. Certain types of trees are popping up that the bees use to make propolis, which you probably know what that is. And we didn't plant them. And the bees didn't plant them. So how did all these beneficial plants for bees start showing up? And so it's almost like they're interacting with the, (laughs) they're connecting to the environment in a way that they're benefiting, they're getting the benefit back, and it's like, it's an absolutely amazing relationship. And then, and they're kind of like the community, I know this sounds a little spiritual, but when I'm out there watching them, I just get this connection with them. And if I'm nervous, they get nervous. They they're not happy. And if I'm calm, which I've now learned to do because of my work as a psychologist, analysis and all that, getting relaxed and trying to calm myself, and they. Actually, there's a thing that we're starting to do this year is to announce family things to them Hmm. so that when someone is born in the family or a marriage or someone passes, the tradition among historic beekeepers is you actually go out and communicate that to the bees. Now, I don't quite know how to do that yet. I think you can sit and feel it and think it and they know, but they're just fascinating species to be with. And of course, they connect to others. And I think the other myth we have sometimes is that they're very calm and so on. They're actually pretty tough bees are tough. They're a wild being that we should pretty much leave alone. I think the biggest problem we have sometimes we do too much for them. And that's my problem with my background is trying to help them and fix them. And they just want to be left alone most of the time, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I watched this one video. I have been known to spend a little bit of time on TikTok of late. And one of the things that captured my attention was this woman beekeeper. And she's essentially educating us about a queenless swarm. And so I guess this is a fairly rare event where the queen, where the swarm, there's too many bees for one hive any longer and they split off, but they don't have a second queen. And so they're kind of like this strange nomad group. And if they don't get a queen, it could be problematic for that particular colony. And so she shows up and she's talking about how they're really docile when they're in this state. And she's literally just reaching in with her hand and scooping up bees and putting them in this container. She's not getting stung, and she's doing this over and over, just slowly picking them up calmly. They just kind of go under her hand and putting them into this container. And then she takes a queen bee that she did bring with her that's in this little
0: wooden box. Cage, like a cage kind of thing, yeah.
2: But it's like they can see the bee and whatever. They can smell it, of course, right? So she puts that queen bee in this wooden box there and she can tell from how they act whether or not they're going to attack and kill the queen and or whether they're going to accept her. And they were going to accept her. So she opened the box, releases the queen. Now this hive can be healthy. And so at the same time, she's taking out this honeycomb and preparing the hive and everything else. And she's got this new swarm that she's she's caretaking for them. And I just thought it was such a beautiful educational moment because so many of us, we just see beekeepers as having these, you know, veils. They almost look like they're a space invader or one of the early scuba divers, right? With the <laughs> whole get getup to prevent being stung by bees. But again, you know, if you're doing it right, you may not need that.
0: That's a great story. I mean, one of the things that I found is that getting stung by a bee is worse for the bees than us.
2: Well, yeah, it kills them.
0: <laughs> but it also attracts all the other bees to come and sting you. And so many bees will die for no reason. That's why I always wear all the gear because I used to do it with nothing too. And then if I stumble and bumble and accidentally move too close and and maybe squeeze a bee a little bit and it stings you, remember all the bees know exactly where you were stung and they will come and sting you in the same spot.
2: Yeah, because it emits pheromones. And even you can see it when you get stung, you'll see that the little bee butt that might be stuck in your hand is like throbbing. It's like sending message
0: and it's a laser. Like They know exactly. So when they're swarming, remember, they they consume a lot of honey, and they pretty much can't sting you because their bellies are so full of honey that they can't move their abdomen up enough to sting you. So A beekeeper is pretty safe to handle bees that are in a swarm or calm. And I just want to do, I'm always worried about them. I used to be worried about myself when I started because I was so, I got the EpiPen and everything ready. But, you know, now it's about them. So, and any beekeeping is good beekeeping. I think that's one of the problems we have with beekeeping. I was talking to someone at the environmental conference who was telling me I should do this with my bees and I should do this. And I kept crying and I could do that. I could do that. And it's great that you're doing that. But people get too pushed into their boxes about beekeeping, especially when, when there's mites and the bees are collapsing. A lot of bees, you know what, they get up in the morning and they look around, they go, you know what, this isn't a great house and we're going to move. So all of a sudden they get up and they move. And we call it absconding. And everybody says, well, the bees are gone. They're just the colony collapse disorder. They're all gone. Well, maybe they left because they didn't like the neighborhood. And there wasn't enough food no seriously that's why they leave where you're spraying too much or the tree, or they're afraid so it's all part of what happens so i guess our challenge you asked me maybe what the problem is we have to know when not to help and when to help and that's the hardest thing for me right now well
2: let's talk for a moment about this conference that's fresh on your mind because you were just there so (laughs) what was some of the advice that these people were perhaps without welcome hurtling onto your shoulders
0: well, it was Globe Exchange. It was a great conference for learning about. Well, in Canada, the determination is to be neutral, net zero by 2030. I've been around a bit, so I'm kind of a simple guy. Thinking, okay, how are we going to do that? And more importantly, what does that do to my bees or nature or having a better world for our grandkids, which is what this is all about in the next generation? And there's a lot of consultants and a lot of math and a lot of carbon offsets here and that, but. Right now, I think as a species, we're kind of stuck on trying to figure out how to fix this problem. And a lot of the solutions I think are common sense, like you started off mentioning your goals. We all can do something. And if we all did a little bit, then everything would get better. My thing is, what am I gonna do today? What am I gonna do tomorrow at nine o'clock? So the conference was incredible in the sense of, providing you sort of a litmus test for what's happening in the world today. You know, there are representatives from the United Nations, a lot of politicians from Canada, and then it became very political, which I'm not popular, I don't enjoy that too much, because I think it should be apolitical, regardless of who's in charge or who's in power, We should have solutions that are going to continue to make the world a better place. And I think that's something where we get caught up in all these battles. And one of the politicians, for example, said, well, if you elect the other party next election, the world's going to blow up.
2: That's everything we hear here in the States, too. It's exactly everything.
0: And it's not true.
2: Well, in some cases it can be. There'll be walkbacks of environmental policies. We did see that when Donald Trump was elected. Restrictions on the EPA were kind of like, wait, who's controlling the EPA now? Wait, an oil exec? What's happening here? So the Environmental Protection Agency wasn't really doing as much to support the environment, was doing more to protect big business. And so we saw some pretty significant changes in that capacity. But- I'm in complete agreement with you that this is a non-political issue. It shouldn't be.
0: Well, you have to have a good business model, right? Like we have 13 solar installations ourselves all over different places because they're good business models. It's good for the environment, but it's also good business. So with the bees, it's about what I call land banking. So instead of putting money in the bank, we buy land. And the best thing to do is make that land the best for the planet so we have some seven or eight hundred acres in different spots it's not farmland or anything but some of it needs to be turned back over in a different way to nature but trying to take care of that someday won't be good for i won't do anything with it business-wise but maybe 10 generations from now people will want to walk it and it'll be a private park or something like i don't know but just something that will have a positive business model and governments can do things like one of the properties we purchased has zero taxes You don't pay any property taxes because it's zoned residential forest or something, not residential, sorry, recreational forest. They don't have taxes in that province for that. So we're incentivized. To have no pressure to have any income, or, or we can sit on generations can sit on that property and not have. So, those are some things governments can do, as opposed to saying, Well, we're going to walk in and fine you if you can't tell us where your paper comes from that's in your paper. And I'm thinking, Okay, my photocopier. My problem with that is on Monday morning, how are we going to help the bees? Because you know, the cool thing about the bees, they're not only a spiritual connection to what I think is, as one Aboriginal leader called Mother Earth. And that was really the message I got from it. How can we help heal this planet we live on? They're sort of like the canary in the coal mine. If your bees and bumblebees aren't doing well, there's something wrong. And we're probably not going to be doing well in a while because of what's in our environment. And habitat, I think when I started, I thought habitat was 50%. I'm starting to think habitat's 95% Mm -hmm. of survival. What food they have, the diversity? Is it clean? Is the water? Do they have access? And I think if we took care of that, things would be much better.
2: Well, there's a story told in Paul Hawkins' Regeneration where they set aside some land that had been unproductive and were working to really try and see what they could do differently to farm it more efficiently, but ultimately made the decision to rewild it. And rewilding it effectively meant that they introduced a species of cow Also, some pigs and some other animals that would turn the soil a bit, that would manure on it, that would graze the underbrush and keep fire hazards down. And what they saw over the course of a generation was that all these birds that had been gone uh, reappeared. Insects that they hadn't seen or that were near extinct were now doing much better. And so, part of your earlier story, talking about these trees that weren't planted or these wildflowers returning, that was interesting to me, is I'm thinking, it's probably something to do with the birds, right? Yeah, Because the birds come in, they follow the bees because they eat the insects, right? And they're dropping seeds everywhere. So granted, I'm sure that this is multifaceted, but this is why an ecosystem is so absolutely complex and why recommendations have been to set aside at least 30% of productive land so that it can recover. And so that it can support carbon sequestration. The same thing with our oceans. And the key here is not just setting aside arid land that is like desert-like or swaths of the ocean where we have a plastic jungle as opposed to coral reefs. Like we really need to think about what we're doing to set aside that space so that nature can support the entire small water cycle, that we can start sequestering more carbon so that wildfires can reduce so that the entire planet can live in harmony again, because we obviously have not been supporting that.
0: And that was some of the pushback we got, because our 50 acres is part of an area which has the most fertile land for agriculture. I mean, farmers around us get 200 bushels of corn to the acre, and they call it a bad year. Hmm. And when I was young, it was 75. So taking the land out that you talk about and returning it to nature should have no impact on food in the world because the productivity of all the other Farms is so much more than it was years ago, hmm. and not only that, we don't know why because most of the crops farmers grow are self-pollinating. Yields, according to the research, go up anywhere from ten to twenty percent if they're around honeybees, mm-hmm. and nobody knows why because the bees don't really visit that much. But there has to be something going on. So I said to one farmer who came over, wondered what I was doing. I said, are "You going to send me a check for the percentage of the improvement?" He just kind of laughed because he. First thing he said was, well, there's some weeds in your field there. And I ca- we call them wildflowers. We don't call them weeds. And, so, and even something like, say, purple thistle, there is only one place in the planet right now where you can get purple thistle honey, and that's on a small island in Italy
1: mm.
0: and our farm last year because the drought that happened in Canada in our area meant that the purple thistle thrived and our honeybees and natural pollinators loved it. But the neighbors didn't because when, when the seeds went to pod, it was like snowing purple thistle seeds all over the place. It was quite beautiful actually. (laughs) But the weed police went after him. We might talk about it.
2: They can be quite prolific, which is the problem, right?
0: (laughs) Well they call it a problem, but you know it's a national flower of Scotland.
2: And it's also a food. The thistle itself is a food. It's powerfully it's a liver tonic. It supports skin health. I mean we could talk about the nutrient value of it for days. but
0: And I say the beef.
2: That comes up, it's like we create pesticides to kill food all the time. And it's a problem that I think that we need to take more seriously. The movement towards a more regenerative way to grow things is really, I think, where we need to be headed. But it's a big hurdle for farmers to kind of go from this agronomic perspective that they had before where they set aside so much money for their pesticides and so much money for their seeds to thinking about instead of, let's say, weeding everything and spraying everything with some cancer-causing agent that will kill the weeds, they can just mow it down or crimp it down or use another method, something to that effect.
0: We're going to pilot test infrared light this year because there's science on infrared light in the laboratory Within a week, curing bees of neonicotoid. Oh wow. Complete immersion. Wow. And by accident, our 24/7 webcam at night, we have an infrared light.
2: Let's pause here for a second. For those that don't understand what these types of pesticides are, can you sum up for us?
0: Well, there's a toxic. when we got out of the fruit business, the toxicity became more, as I would be simply saying, in the meat of the fruit. So in other words, it used to be you could wash an apple, you could wash some cherries and you would get rid of the spray because it was on the surface. But now things are planted in corn and soybeans when they're very young, like seedlings, so that it's incorporated into the entire food product. When farmers are planting corn in this community and they have this uh, pesticide in the corn seed and it's able to then put it into its cobs so that the corn borer doesn't eat the corn. But the problem is when the corn flowers, and and honeybees and other insects like diversity. So they don't like to go to the same restaurant every day. Even though they don't need it, they'll go to a corn stalk and maybe get a little pollen here. And, and there's some health associated with diversity. That's sort of their genetics. Mm-hmm. The more diverse their food, the healthier they're going to be. And the research shows that the honeybees are drastically impacted, and other insects as well, by this type of pesticide. So in a laboratory, probably five or six years ago, genius chemist did a research where he he dipped honeybees, unfortunately, in these pesticides directly, and then gave them infrared light of a certain spectrum. And within a week, they were basically cured. And no one has taken that research and put it in the field very well. And again, we just accidentally stumbled upon it. Most of this is just luck and bumbling and stumbling that I'm doing. But one night we noticed it was like six degrees and there was a clump of bees right around the infrared camera. Hmm. And the next night, there was another clump of bees, and then it got bigger, but they weren't swarming. They were actually treating themselves with the infrared light that the camera was using to give us the picture. Oh, wow. So, that's when I started digging into some... And by the way, a strong hive like you would not believe. Like, this hive is crazy strong. And sure enough, the research shows they did one small trial in the field, and they said, if you put infrared light, give bees exposure to that. And and we're doing it on the outside of the hive. So, in other words, bees can use it if they want, but we're not... in fringing on their world because i think that's too difficult to go into someone's house and make them sit at a light all the time (laughs) so they're going to basically be when they want they can come out and give themselves that kind of an experience i talked to an electrician friend of mine who who kind of built these with solar little tiny solar panels they're like little little mini solar panels are going to be on the side of the hive to power these little infrared lights that the bees can use and we're going to do some research and we're going to put them as close as we can because remember all around me is roundup spraying heavy duty agriculture and what we wanted to create was a place for the bees that's a refuge so they don't have to go anywhere bees are like us they're lazy if you can give them everything they need they won't travel right so we give them the best food the best water like we try to and most of our bees don't go too far so that's the plan
2: so you mentioned a few things through this that I want to circle back to. One is that you're having uh, trouble growing garlic on your property.
0: I was. Can you explain <laughs> that? Well, because there's drift when people spray. So with, I don't know if your listeners know about Roundup or that Lyphosate, type of Glyphosate, right. So basically the plants are genetically modified to not die when they get hit with this spray. But the spray kills everything else. And so if you grow garlic near a field that's being sprayed, the drift will probably kill your garlic. Plus, it will get absorbed into the actual food because that's the tricky thing. When we used to have a fruit farm, I was doing reduced spray then, which wasn't very popular. People get mad at me, but I didn't like the spray, but it was at least surface spray. It wasn't systemic i would say pretty much most of the sprays out there are systemic meaning it's in the meat of the food you eat
2: yeah and it's also now in our water tables and everywhere so it's unavoidable glyphosate at this point
0: you can't wash it so they say yeah you eat an apple it's fullest by the way apples are sprayed every eight days hmm. so apples are good for you but if you eat an apple you're still exposed so long story short with that the garlic was a problem but remember i can grow a hundred bulbs this is how good our soil is i grow a hundred bulbs on an area the size of a kitchen table Mm. with no fertilizer, nothing. But you have to rotate every three years. Every year you rotate and then you can go back. And that's what I do. I couldn't find any more land because I had a small little part that I kept from the farm. And so I needed more land. So now I can plant a little kitchen table size anywhere I want.
2: So this is the reason (laughs) that I have always strived to eat organic. And I think helping people understand that it's not something that can just easily be washed off I mean, I will be frank at this point. I barely wash my vegetables and fruits because I'm like, it doesn't do any good. I just buy organic. And perhaps it's part laziness and being the fast-working mom and all that jazz. But uh, because I've also read the research and understand that it's in the actual food itself, not just on the outside of it. So if you're washing things off, sometimes you're also washing off beneficial bacteria. There could be the bad stuff, but there could also be the good stuff. And if you read on soil-based organisms, sometimes you just don't, you know, the, the dirt you're shaking off the carrot, that's uh, edible too.
0: <laughs> well, one of the scariest memories I have of farming was we grew some broccoli. And I would get up at five in the morning, I was in the university time, I would cut the broccoli, pack it in ice, and take it to a restaurant, and that would be their special. Whatever I brought was their special, and it was amazing, right? But the pesticide you were supposed to use sort of goes like this. You put it in your sprayer, And you have to wait an hour for it to come to life Hmm. and i said what do you mean come to life well it's actually a bacteria that gives the worms that eat the broccoli a disease where they basically their intestines come out they basically it's a form of a disease Hmm. and the recommendations say there's no residue you can eat it the next hour if you wanted and i'm thinking how is that possible Hmm. we got out of that we stopped growing we never really used that we would just look at the broccoli if it had a worm we wouldn't send it to the restaurant but that's the kind of stuff that was designed and well mean it was well-meaning, right? It was designed because people needed to eat and there wasn't enough food. And I just think we can do better now. And I think we need to understand, that, as you said, the washing is important to make sure there's nothing transferred by the workers onto that product, which can make you sick. But as far as washing the spray off that we used to say, I don't think there's such a thing anymore. Hmm. Unless it's organic. If it's organic, then I think we have an opportunity. And the other thing I'll tell you quickly, I don't know if you've ever been to Italy, but if you go in the backyard of someone in Italy in most communities, they're self-sustaining. They have a few chickens, they have a great garden, they have a few trees. And when COVID was going on, the folks were doing pretty well because they were always growing their own food anyway. And that's another way around that of sharing and, and trying to figure out how to do be sustainable that way. Right. You grow
2: green beans, your neighbor grows melons, you know, and you just kind of trade them around. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I'd trade garlic and honey for other stuff and that would work, but we haven't taught that in schools and we haven't given that opportunity to people to learn those skills of even how to cook with what's available today in an expensive way with the price of food.
2: Wow. Well, I recently learned that you can, with a more limited space, even farm instead of backyard chicken, backyard quail. And quail, apparently this larger quail species that people are farming, can are very productive with their egg laying. They lay up to 300 eggs in a single year per fry.
1: My goodness, that's great.
2: So a lot of little eggs. (laughs) So that would be little egg omelets, but uh, quail eggs are delicious. And I mean, I find I look forward to having them whenever I go out for sushi. So This is something that people might consider also if they don't have as much space or if they worry about the crowing chickens or roosters rather, because chickens can be a little loud and quail are low.
0: Well, and there's so much we can do. When I'm in one part of this country in Nova Scotia where we have some properties, we recycle 95% of human waste that would go to a landfill. Mm -hmm. And when you go take your garbage out every two weeks, you've got about the amount of an apple that goes to a landfill and the rest is all going for And it's real recycling. They've traced it. It's a small community, but they really take the environment seriously. I come back here to the farm, 0% recycling. <sighs> Everything goes to a landfill. And so I go to a conference in Toronto and they're talking about this and that. I think, can we just start with landfills? Can we just not do this to the world? Like, why don't... And they kind of look at you like, well, we're into carbon offsets. and Well, we're taking garbage and we're burying it because we're too lazy to separate it, especially organics. 35% of landfill in this community is organics. Yep. But because the large, and by the way, if you look up recycling, waste connections come up, and they don't do any recycling. They're a landfill company, right? And so the 35%, if you took that out of the garbage, it affects their profitability. So they want to put all the organics into the landfill, and then in 10 years sell you the gas back, or let the methane burn off. Well, you didn't have to have methane in the first place because you didn't have to put organics into a garbage.
2: And methane is 80 times more of a problem than CO2, just in so far as its impact, because you can't draw it down. Do you ever just think? It stays up in the greenhouse gases a lot longer.
0: Back to my point. Do you ever think a dumb Some of this stuff is just dumb. Like even bees, like we talk about honeybees doing dumb things. We've done so much to bees that we have some bees a couple of years ago. They didn't know how to swarm because they'd never swarmed. Because one of the traditions of beekeeping, modern beekeeping, is you don't let your hives swarm. Why? Well, because it cuts production, right? Because when bees swarm, 20,000 bees leave. So you lose half your workforce.
2: Well, how do you keep them from swarming, though?
0: Oh, man. Okay. Well.
2: I, I mean, this is news to me. I've seen bees swarm. I've found swarms like just on the edge of my property like in a pile on the ground or and i've seen them separate up in the sky into two
0: it's a beautiful by the way that's the way honey bees reproduce and are sustainable but if you stop them from swarming you're going to have more honey production so to stop them from swarming and i'm just saying this is what happens i'm not saying it's good or bad traditional what i call livestock beekeeping will mean that you may clip the queen's wings so she can't climb she can't fly when you go in every two weeks, which we don't do. In our in servant beekeeping, we go in once a year, maybe twice a year. But they recommend every two weeks you go into a hive. And if you see queen cells, you destroy them. Because the queen cell is the way the worker bees create the next new queen that they want when they swarm.
2: Right. And it's obvious because it's a larger
0: cell, right? Yeah, it looks like a big peanut maybe.
1: Yeah.
0: Instead of the regular cell. But what we've done here initially when the bees swarmed, sometimes they swarm on the ground. Mm-hmm. I've seen that too. And that's a dumb bee, because when you swarm on the ground, remember, you can't sting anybody, and anybody could eat you. (laughs) Raccoon, skunk, rats, mice, because you can't defend yourself. And they almost never make it when they swarm on the ground. They just don't make it because it's not normal for them to do that. Well, it's because honeybees have neuroplasticity that happens in six weeks. Think about that. So a honeybee has a a brain the size of a sesame seed. Mm -hmm. But if it learns a new behavior that becomes wired into their brain. Mm -hmm. Okay? So this is really crazy. So then, when they're creating a new queen, they use royal jelly that they process in their own bodies. Mm -hmm. They pass on the new neuroplasticity genetics in the food to the next queen that's created.
2: So now she doesn't know how to swarm.
0: Yes, or she has a good benefit that they've learned on our farm so that the next queen is that much stronger and that much more knowledgeable about what it's like to live around this farm as opposed to, say, a place in California. Mm-hmm. Because it's very localized, right? So the worker bees pass on this information to the next generation that way. But if you stop that from happening, and the other thing that happens, which can I tell you this one? This one, So when the queen is no longer in a hive, sometimes the workers start laying eggs. They take over the job. Okay, now they're only going to last maybe 30 days, maybe 60, and they're going to be gone. But they start laying eggs, and they're only going to produce drones. Hmm. They can't produce worker bees or a queen. Hmm. Those drones, however, have all of the genetics from those worker bees. So all of that knowledge they have that was in their brain is now transferred over to the next generation of bees through the drone now they will pass or go join another hive, but those drones will go and hopefully connect with the queen and make that so this is amazing but what they tell you to do and i did my first year is when you have a queenless hive either put a queen in or take the honey and just don't worry about let the bees fly wherever but if you leave them alone as i did because that's what we do on the farm and watch them over time you'll see how they create a new community whose sole purpose is to create drones now if you told a beekeeper I want a lot of drones, they'd say you're crazy because they don't want drones either. The technique is often to kill the drones or to put the drone frames in a freezer so they die because they don't want too many drones because the belief is drones hang around, eat food and don't do anything.
2: Hmm. So what is the difference for those that don't know between a drone, a worker bee and a worker bee?
0: Well, if we went by traditional, what we would say is that the worker bees are female as is the queen and the drones are the males. And so the drone is an unfertilized egg, that's how you create a drone. And the worker bee and the queen is from a fertilized egg. But the queen has some of those too. So the queen creates a lot of drones herself to transfer her genetics to the male side so it can go out and reproduce. But we know now that the drones are extremely important to a hive. So what the bees do, the drones not only pass on the next genetics, but the drones are the heating and cooling system for the hive Hmm. until they're no longer needed. So in Canada here, the drones are needed till about October, sometimes earlier, sometimes later. At that time, they're dragged out by the workers and no longer allowed back into the house. (laughs) Because they serve no purpose. They eat more than they can produce. And the bees have this way to know that, hey, if we keep them around, the heating and cooling we get from them doesn't equal the amount of honey they eat. And we need honey for the winter. So we're going to drag them out. And say we call it a drone eviction. And we actually have it on video and we watch it on the cameras. And it's kind of tough to watch. And the drones are sort of bumbling and stumbling. They come back and then a group comes out and drags them out again. And eventually they give up and they they go away. But the drones are part of the life cycle. And there also is some, on the spiritual side, we believe, drones add a certain vibe to the hive. (laughs) They're just kind of calm and they're kind of there. They do have some... Role that we probably just can't even identify. We probably know five percent of what we're supposed to know about bees, you know. We don't know anything
2: about well, it's the same way when we look at other species of animal too. Like for instance, sardines, and this is just taking us right into the oceans, right? We know that they move on mass more quickly than you could determine by the speed of light. So they're communicating so quickly, like they're essentially in this neural link. It is happening quicker than the speed of light to react to their environment and change direction. So if we understand that about a species like sardines and it forever perplexed us, we didn't understand how or why, and we still don't really, right? That something could move faster than the speed of light, then I think it gives us a different view on what could be happening in a colony of bees or ants or any of these sort of communal consciousness critters. because. They really are. They're a servant in a way to the queen, but it's about the everything's about the hive. Like that's it. Its own kind of unit in a way.
0: Yeah, it's a community, right? And the other thing is, you know, there's some beehives that have more than one queen. Hmm. Sometimes they allow a queen to live. And traditionally people are told no, there can only be one queen. Now they say fifteen to twenty percent of hives actually have two queens. Wow. And we don't know why or how. And we also know they do takeovers. So if a beekeeper is at their hive and goes and gets a glass of water and comes back, in the meantime, an entire new hive could have come in, taken over that hive, killed the queen. And the guy doesn't even know about it and thinks he's got to, because you can't keep bees in a corral or a barn and bees are going to (laughs) go do what they do. And I talked to a beekeeper about this the other day. He said, I was crazy. He said he would know. And I said, well, how would you know? You go get a glass of water, you come back, you say, boy, the bees are suddenly very active. How would you know that they got taken over? Well, you don't, but it happens all the time. They go in and take. they find a weaker hive that has more resources. They didn't like their house, so they left. And they did what I call a hostile takeover. They went in, took out the queen, and now there's a new hive there. And so we really don't know a lot, but what we do know is they're helpful for us and they foster bumblebees. And bumblebees are two and a half times more efficient than honeybees in pollinating things, right? Plants, flowers, fruit. So if you have bumblebees, things are that much better on a farm or property. So if we can somehow get that out there, I think it's going to help us all. And again, the goal is for the grandkids, right? Because you can't have honeybees and have a toxic environment. You can't have bumblebees. And if we don't have them, that should be enough. We shouldn't need a lot of consultants to tell us what we can do, X, Y, or Z. Let's just take a look, walk, immerse yourself. And mental health-wise, I was in a mental health practice for 30 years. And there's so much written now, I've discovered since I've retired, on honeybees and mental health that there is a clinic, I believe it's in Europe, where for PTSD, you go and you lie above a hive and you sleep overnight. You're not actually in the hive, but you're so close that it's like you're in a hive. There's like four or five hives under the hammock. So it's
2: the vibrations, you get the vibrations.
0: The sound, we wanna watch and listen. When we listen, when I listen to my bees, you can really tell the different types of sounds based on how they're feeling.
1: Yeah.
0: And the toughest is when the queen has passed and they're depressed. Mm. And they just, the sound is so, and they sort of walk around aimlessly. Some of the hives get aggressive when that happens, but some of them just give up. They just give up. And then they're open to be attacked by wasps and other things. Wow.
2: Before we get into this last stretch of our conversation, I want to talk about honey. And the reason I want to talk about honey is because a lot of people have gone to a plant-based or vegan diet and consider honey to be an animal product that they also don't touch so I wanted to see from your perspective, given that you are minding bees, what you would say to those individuals and is there a way to produce a harmonious honey that can also support the hive in the colony?
0: So I'll tell you a bit about how we handle that. And then I'm not, obviously, I don't know a lot of the vegan movement and the rules, so I'm probably breaking a lot of them. But what we would do is we respect the bees and their right to collect all the food they need to survive happily. So we do not excessively we don't take honey we take a very little bit of honey in august from certain hives who are extremely strong and have produced too much they become honey bound
2: mm-hmm. well just like a plant becomes root bound right same thing
0: absolutely they 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 are so efficient that they will make cells and pack honey everywhere around the hive and you can't even take out a frame because everything's all sort of massed together and we might take one frame from a hive sometimes we would have put a few extra frames in, but within a week, everything is replaced because it's usually the start of goldenrod season when we do it here. And so it's very complimentary and respectful to the honey. We never feed our bees. When I started, everyone said, you got to feed them sugar water. Mm. And I said, "Why well, would you feed them sugar? Like, I don't do well when I eat sugar. I took white sugar out of my diet and it really saved my digestive life, I think. <laughs> I'd say, why would I give bees sugar water? And sure enough, it's not healthy for them.
2: No, they need to forage.
0: Oh, it's not good, right? They're not made to take that kind of processed sugar. So when you leave bees enough honey or have honey to give them, then you're in sync. And I guess to answer your question, are you in harmony and are you balanced with nature? I think bees want to give us some honey. I know that sounds crazy because they're Not thinking, but for about
2: us. (laughs) Not in the way that you and I understand, but I think they're thinking.
0: I believe they respect. When I'm there, I'm wearing my hat and stuff because if they get in your hair, they get a little crazy. I don't have much left. But when you stand there, it's almost like they'll come up. And as long as you're not bumping, you, when they bump you in the head, that means you better get away because they're about to sting you because they know that's where it would hurt the most. But generally, they'll come and they'll sit on your arm or something and they'll take a look and then they'll fly away and you sit there there is a connection there. And I think as long as you respect that now, when it comes to livestock production, it's very much like livestock production of cattle or chickens or any other process, the bees see our hives are all spread out. So we don't have any hives that are beside each other, because that's not healthy for bees, because 15 to 20% of time, they come back to the wrong house, Hmm. if it's too close. And so if you have a hive, that's not well, that will get quickly transferred to the other hives, and they'll all get sick we spread them out. Plus, we want to learn, does the microclimate 200 yards away have an impact on survival rates and so on? So I think if I was into the issue of being a vegan, I would probably really want to know the history of the food I ate and how are the honeybees respected. And when you look at how honey is made, see, I don't know what the argument is because honeybees make it from the actual plant products. They add their own twist to it. They take out the water. And that provides you with honey that has incredible benefits for health.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you know, you can put honey on a cut. actually put it on cuts and bruises now and it heals overnight. It's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. That's a very much what Manuka honey is used for as well. And they call that the high ORAC value and everything. But um, what I wanted to share is a story about some beekeepers from Southern Oregon that impacted my life when I was growing up. And so I have a mom and a sister who suffer from the worst poison oak. Like, if they touch somebody who touched poison oak, or if they brush up against an animal, they get like, I mean, we're talking seeping wounds all over their bodies, like walking puss balls. I know it's gross, right? But you imagine the pain that somebody's going through with something like that.
0: I'm a poison ivy guy. I used to get it every year as a kid, whether I touched anything or not.
2: Yeah. So, you know, people can get it from the pollen in the air if they're really sensitive. And so, what happened in this case is we found this local bee farmer who would take his hive and he would put it in the forest when the poison oak was blooming. And so, you specifically right at the beginning of the season when it would bloom, and the honey from that he would bottle as its own like medicine. And so he gave that honey away at his stand. I think, I mean, and I was just a little kid at the time, and I think he was charging $10, which was a lot at the time for a jar. But he was also saying, look, one measured teaspoon, not more a day, one measured teaspoon, right? And we would consume one measured teaspoon of this honey each day. My mom and my sister both stopped getting this kind of really intense rash from poison oak. They still get it a little bit, but more like an average person was. I actually happen to have some on my neck right now because I was hiking and went under a bush (laughs) and it scraped my neck.
0: Can I ask what's it taste like, the the honey from the oak blossoms?
2: I want to say it was very similar to, uh, it was like an apple almost. Okay. Apple honey.
0: Okay. Yeah. Light, very light.
2: Very light, not really remarkable. You know, like Orange honeys can be really intense. Clover honeys are, oh God, they've got this such soothing palate. I've had alfalfa honeys, which are more grassy and you can actually taste the grass to them. Just kind of light. And so for those of you who love honey the way I do, I mean, I have used honey to treat seasonal allergies my entire life. I will always go to a local bee farmer who lives in my community and is growing Honey or farming well with their bees, and just get a little jar every beginning of a flowering season. I used to get really debilitating seasonal allergies Mm. that are gone. I just don't have them anymore.
0: That's wonderful.
2: The one case in which I had a very bad reaction, I was traveling in Australia, going through the area of Australia by the 12 apostles. I'd never been in this area in my life, (laughs) it's on the southern coast of Australia absolutely beautiful coastal view. And suddenly I'm going to a wine tasting with my husband and I'm leaking like a sieve and sneezing. My eyes are watering. It's painful. And I wasn't able to address it as swiftly with something like honey. So I had to go to like, the pharmacy and get something that will work right now. But I haven't had to employ that in the area I live in ever since you know I really started using honey in this way. So I think it's a tremendous tool. I think when you have a responsible bee farmer that, you know, they're, they're looking out for their hive and they care about the hive. Like it's part of the family too. So I really just think we need to think about things differently. Now, if you're going to the grocery store and buying a giant tub of some far off honey, I don't advocate that. I buy all mine in glass jars and I try to go to the local farmer's markets.
0: You know, balance is important. I don't know if that answers the vegan question, but I find if we keep thinking of balance, things get better.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the problem with honey, I don't know what it's like in Canada here. There's no real standards for calling something honey. They did a study and they found a lot of corn syrup in honey here.
2: Yeah. And in fact, things will say 100% honey. And you're right. They've done tests. The same thing has plagued the olive oil industry. Thankfully, those olive oils that originate in California were never a part of that, but several that were labeled as being Italian were falsely labeled.
0: I think sustainability, you know, when we talk about the environment, and earlier I mentioned Italy, the more we, we do for ourselves is probably in the long run better for the environment as well because we're doing more and we're more connected to it. If connected to the land, if you don't do the smells and see the things and feel it, you're not connected, so it's a number to you. And I think that's one of the issues we talked about the conference earlier. The majority of the people, I would say, of the 1,000 experts that were there hadn't had a lot of experience walking in a forest or, or just looking and smelling or touching soil or planting something. And until you have that connection, I think we do an injustice to our children because they don't have that opportunity anymore because we're not agriculture for a lot of reasons, but I encourage people, if you can advocate for your municipality to let you dig up your backyard, like some places you can't dig up your backyard.
2: <laughs> That's really astounding, isn't it yours?
0: The weed police, I told you about the weed police, they were going to arrest me.
2: <laughs> we didn't talk about that. Okay, I know we're at 52 minutes, but now you drop the bomb. The weed police were going to arrest you? Tell the story. It
0: was about the uh, thistle. I was away uh, for a week or two and that's when the things start happening. A neighbor didn't like all the, you know, the snow flying. And so the weed police comes and they said, Well, first he called me and he said, We want you to cut down your thistle. I said, No, I'm not cutting down my thistle because the bees are flying and there's other flowers blooming around, and it's a wildflower, and my wife's Scottish, and it's the Scottish flower of Scotland, and I'm not cutting it down. He said, well, if you don't, we're going to cut your fence. And I purposely fenced the entire 50 acres so that I could have some protection from that kind of thing. He said, we'll call the police. We will cut the fence. And if you stop, I said, well, I'm going to stop. He said, we'll arrest you. I said, okay. So he comes for a visit and we go around the farm. And I sort of talk to him for about 45 minutes and tell him. The, he says, okay, let me tell you how it really works. You have to demonstrate that you're making an attempt to cut them. And I said, okay, right over there is my dad's sickle if I cut two plants, am I making an attempt? He goes, I guess you are. I said, okay, did you want me to cut the two plants now? Or did you want me to wait? He said, just don't worry about it. And he left. And I said, listen, I said, I'm doing what the best I can. So we have these archaic laws, these ridiculous laws. And by the way, there isn't one flower from our farm that's escaped to any farm around. All the farms around us are like golf courses. You won't find one weed in a cornfield because they spray with all this stuff that kills everything. So, on the one hand, we don't like the spray, but on the other hand, it keeps the weed police. Because I told him, I said, well, look around. Do you see any of these? He goes, no, no, but long story short, they were going to arrest me, actually. And I thought, this is insanity.
2: See, when you said weed police, I thought you were talking about marijuana. (laughs) All of that's
0: legal up here in Canada. You can grow all the pot you want, but you can't grow any purple thistle.
2: Yeah, no purple Like, literally the weed police.
0: We can grow four. I think it's four pot plants we can grow okay each of us
2: yeah california has something similar but you know
0: yeah no he didn't care about pot he didn't want to hear about it but he actually in the end we and i said why don't you come back and i said i'll take you around stuff so we actually got along but i said you're going to keep getting complaints about this because i know but now i know your plan so this year Because we have a section of that soil that's very acidic, I uh, frost planted some uh, red clover, which is great for bumblebees. And so hopefully that will sort of equal the battle with the Scottish plant and everybody will be happy in harmony. I'm sure he'll be back.
2: Well, I know that we talked for a moment about how easy it is to plant clover and clover makes a lot more drought tolerant. You don't have to give it as much water. I try to plant in my local yard here, I'm in California. Just different plants that are more drought tolerant and that also flower. So I have a lot of salvia, which the bumblebees like. Like I have a variety that's from Spain. It's like yellow and bright and vibrant. Another that's called hot lips and it's like white and pink. And so the hummingbirds love them. And also the bumblebees. We get a lot of bumblebees in our yard. I also have a couple of others that are like cornflower blue bush that just has a ton of um, sticky flowers. Like they stick to you if you walk by the plant. I can't even remember what it's called. But it's nice to have just a vibrant garden of things that I can eat and things that I don't. I I plant strawberries as a ground cover. The snails probably eat as many of them as I do. But
0: the diversity is incredible what you describe because Honeybees will go to different things on purpose because it makes them healthier. Mm -hmm. We just had one lavender plant, about this big, right, growing out in in the back. And the one hive closest to it, we did take a frame of honey and it tasted like lavender. Mm -hmm. Because the other hives didn't because they go to the closest flowers first. And it was quite an interesting experience. And the bees were very healthy. So yeah, whatever people can do, like clover I mentioned, because it's kind of like the gas station for bees, right? Mm -hmm. Clover has that extra sugar content. So they have to work less at making it honey when they bring it back to the hive or the bumblebees when they take it and they use it. Mm It's sort of nice to have some of that now. Sometimes there's an argument with people who say, "Well, that's not native. It's not a native species."
2: But it's very easy to seed, right? You just literally toss it on the lawn and
0: Exactly. Exactly. So it's if you're going to do something, I think that would be a great thing to do. The diversity is actually the next level. It's like you're in the NBA if you're doing diversity because that's really important for wildlife.
2: And I don't care about the dandelions. When the dandelions grow, my kids like to blow them when they get the full head of seeds on them.
0: Dandelions are the best for bees. Hey, do you have weed police in California?
2: Not that I know.
0: <laughs> like if you let your lawn go and you've got, it's funny, milkweed, you know milkweed for monarchs, right?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: For years, milkweed was a noxious weed until the lobby group here thankfully got together and said, look, the monarchs are dying. We need more milk. I mean, I even fought with the municipality. They were going to, what they do here is the weed police come out. They write you a ticket. No, seriously. And then the muni- the town comes and cuts the land, right? And gives you a bill to cut it. And if you don't pay it, they put it on your taxes. So I fought one year. They were going to cut my milkweed. I had some milkweed. And I remember I went to the council at the time because milkweed was on the list of bad species. And so I said, I just got a email from David Suzuki that I could buy milkweed plants and plant them. To help the monarchs and the mayor stood up and said i will personally get on the tractor and cut down your milkweed <laughs> okay that was only 10 <laughs> years ago and then five years after that They took it off the list because thankfully enough people shook their head and said, well, milkweed is the only thing the monarchs, the monarchs survive on on milkweed. And so they took it off the list, just abracadabra.
2: I mean, the reason they do, just for anybody who doesn't understand, they have to eat milkweed because it builds a toxin in their bodies that prevents them from being eaten. So for the birds to remain smart and not eating them for generations, they need to keep eating the milkweed or they will just be picked off. And that's, you know, their demise.
0: Isn't that an incredible thing, though, that the the monarchs are toxic to eat? So that's like from the milk. Like, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's
2: amazing. And I mean, that's why they will basically, they adhere their chrysalis mostly to those. So, I mean, I just think that's amazing, too. I'm in California, as I've mentioned a few times. Pacific Grove, where I used to live, is considered a monarch capital. There were many years there. It was hard to see very many of them. But now they're coming back in a way that is really encouraging. That's not to say that they're in the complete clear now, but by limiting things like pesticide spraying and by being a part of the solution, planting corridors for their pollinators, you know, really making sure that you have flowers that bloom throughout the year to support their migration, and you're doing a good thing.
0: We see more and more every year monarchs on the farm here, and we started blooming a week ago. We found some uh, hairy crests in the farm blooming already. So, And yesterday, the so even though it's like minus two tonight, The bees were bringing pollen back yesterday, which was just blew my mind. So from now until frost in late November, there's always something blooming here on the farm for the bees. Wow. So the monarchs will be here.
2: Yeah, I love it. Okay. So I have one (laughs) last question for you. I know we've had a deep discussion. We're already at the hour point. I would like to know if there's a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, And if there is one, you could ask and answer it. And if not, a closing thought you'd like to leave our audience with so that we can all go into our day with a little more verve in our step, pep in our step, I should say.
0: I think the one question I have is how do you handle that continual impulse to try to overhelp something? Hmm. It's well-meaning, right? You really want to fix or help or, and it could be people. In my case, we're talking honeybees because I really have to almost grab my hand and stop day i'll give you an example i was walking around the farm and i saw a hive that seemed like it was they were flying because they were it was a warmer day but i thought i'll just lift up the back to see how heavy the hive was and it wasn't very heavy hmm. and i thought i can go bring them a nice frame of honey
1: hmm.
0: and they'll just be so happy and then i thought it's not supposed to do that because if you do that you're propagating the behavior for some reason They either ate too much honey or picked a house that had not enough of them or whatever it was. And they will then transfer that to the next generation. And in brutal mother nature, you have to step back and watch and let them do what they're going to do. And it's frustrating because you could save them all the time. You could run around doing things and over, and then you eventually do too much and you destroy them all. So it's that balance between helping and hurting that is a constant struggle for me. Hmm. I just want to go out there and help them all, Yeah, but you can't.
2: I mean, that's it. You have to pick your battles. You have to let nature play its course sometimes too. And so running outside with a spoonful of sugar water, when you see a <laughs> bee just sitting there on the ground may not be the best course of action.
0: No, I mean, a frame of honey actually fits most beekeepers. Even organic beekeepers would accept that to give them honey, to give them a frame of honey that I always store a lot of honey just for the bees. Mm-hmm. So, that next year when we split, we do split hives, which means we take a few and we create a new hive for them. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That sort of fits the philosophy. So, that's probably when to help and not to help is probably the biggest. Uh, and what was the second part, sorry, of your question?
2: That's just the thought that you leave them with.
0: Okay. The thought to leave them with would be for me, what I've learned that this, and I only maybe know 3% of what bees, is to respect the interconnectedness of everything. Hmm. Everything is connected. So, for example, when I walk by the beehive, they feel the vibration of my walking. If you do too much commotion around a beehive, they're stressed. Mm-hmm. And it takes them a couple days to settle. And stress causes disease, just as it does with humans. So sometimes we think, you know, like I've got this great Kubota tractor. It's, it's really cool sometimes to take the front loader and go out and get some branches or something. <laughs> but when you drive that tractor around a beehive, they're disrupted. Yeah, all that vibration and everything, right? Oh, they're ready to fight, right? someone's coming—a bear or whatever's coming—to take us out. We got to be ready, and they can't relax and they can't do what they have to. So, so be mindful. And then, of course, what's helped me—it helps me slow down because you know I'm kind of I have ADD, so I'm kind of up there all the time. It makes you purposely slow down and really like smell things and hear things, and that's a gift they give us. Mm. The gifts they give us go beyond honey and, of course, the pollination is important, but it's about, they make us, if we really take the time to listen, they help us really appreciate what we have. And I think we've lost that.
2: Well, Hank, I think that's a beautiful note on which to end. And I would add to that, that is, for me, what even trees do. communing with nature, going outside barefoot, and just taking a moment to breathe with my bare feet on the ground and some grass or leaves or whatever, just connected to earth. So it sounds like you're incorporating that through your bees and I think that's just lovely.
0: Pretty lucky, thanks for your kind words.
2: Thank you. That was lovely. So from Hank, from me, from the bees, for the company that might've been with Care More Bee Better, I wanna just thank you all for sticking with us for this conversation today. It has been my pure pleasure and joy. Now to connect with Hank Speck and his important work, please visit wildflowerbeefarm.com. That's wildflowerbeefarm.com. I will include links, of course, in show notes, as well as to his book. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and write us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you happen to listen. This helps more people discover the show, and ultimately we can make a bigger difference together. To Hank's point, we are all interconnected. It's a crazy race for space, and we're all in this together. Now, if you're so inclined, you could even share this episode on your social feed or via email or mention it to a friend or even grab their phone and download it so that they can listen to it later. For complete transcripts, bonus features, I encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com. There, when you sign up for our newsletter, you'll receive a weekly email that tells you all about what we're doing specifically out there in the world. You'll hear about Be Better Challenges, which is a hashtag BeBetterChallenge. Each week, I give you tips about how you can be the change that you want to see. And subscribers also receive a welcome gift. It's a five-step guide to unleash your inner activist. It provides worksheets and a basic tool for framing your work so that you could go out there and perhaps even lobby on behalf of the bees. While you're visiting, I really do want to hear from you. You can at caremorebebetter.com leave me a voicemail. You could even reach out and do the same through Instagram at caremore.bebetter. I want to hear your voice too. While this is a one-way exchange in some ways, it is two ways with all my heart. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, we can be better. We can save the bees. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts and share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.